0: You didn't already open your Bible to Romans chapter ten. I hope you will. So we're going to start our uh, our thoughts for the next few minutes here. What must I do to be saved? You ever Googled that before? Oh, it's not like Google's not the best place to go for those kinds of answers, but like you ever done that? Yeah. And there's actually a lot of websites on that. So if you get bored and you just want to see what's out there, you can go. But actually, I'll tell you, it's pretty boring because it's pretty much the same stuff. Uh, I actually went through this yesterday and just checked it out. What, is, what does the Internet say? Which, by the way, like a lot of things, is really just what's the popular consensus? What do people say about this? First off, you'll be pleased to know that that most of the results that this may be Google knowing that I'm into Jesus, I'm not sure. You never know. They're watching you and they know what you're about. But all the hits were all about salvation from sin, salvation from death, salvation from the wrath of God. Religious websites, people who read the Bible, people who have a love for God would answer that question. And I'll just go ahead and tell you, most of those answers that you'll get pretty much boil down to this. Believe in Jesus as Lord. That's the answer. What must I do to be saved? Believe in Jesus as Lord. And that's exactly the right answer. It's exactly the right answer. There are many scriptures throughout the New Testament. When the gospel was preached, that was the call to believe in Jesus as Lord of all. This passage that Brian just read for us in Romans chapter 10 speaks that. This is one of the passages along with John three sixteen 16, or uh, maybe Acts 16, where the jailer came to Paul and he said, what must I do to be saved? And what did Paul say? Believe in the Lord Jesus. Here, this passage, Romans chapter 10 in verses uh, 9 and 10, speaks to this specifically. If you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes resulting in righteousness and with the mouth he confesses resulting in salvation. Believe in the Lord Jesus. That's how you're going to be saved. So here's how this ends up playing out a lot of times. Someone comes, not on Google, but to a real human being says, what must I do to be saved? Someone says, you need to believe in the Lord Jesus. Do you, they might say something like this, accept Jesus in your heart as your Lord and as your personal Savior. And if you say yes, then okay. And some people add on a little bit to this and say, you know, you need to pray maybe a certain prayer. sometimes called the sinner's prayer. Um, And that has a little different wording depending on who it is that's asking the question. But you pray this prayer And now after you pray that prayer, by the way, this kind of gets, uh, this passage and passages like it get mixed with 1 John chapter 1, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and righteous. And people take that and say, if you're not in Christ, you pray this prayer admitting that you're a sinner, confessing Jesus is Lord, boom, you're saved. You're saved. Is that what this passage is teaching? Because a lot of people would say that is what it's teaching. If it is, it's kind of tough because some of you, I imagine, I know some of you are sitting there thinking... But I know there's some other verses talk about things like even Paul himself, the man who wrote this, not to mention Jesus and John the Baptist before Jesus and Peter and the other apostles after Jesus, along with Paul himself, would say things like repent, repent. More than just maybe we can say thinking something is true. And that's sometimes what people uh, mean, basically, I believe that Jesus is Lord, think this thing is true and uh, admit that something is true, that that he is Lord, that he was raised from the dead. Um repentance is a little more than just thinking something is true and admitting something is true, right? And besides that, I also know from Paul's own example, and again, from his teaching, even in the book of Romans and from the preaching of the apostle Peter, for instance, and the preaching of Jesus to the apostles before he's, that baptism is involved in salvation. So this is tough because if you just read this verse, it would say, it would be easy to conclude, hey, if you think that Jesus is Lord, You accept that as the truth, and then you admit that with your mouth, boom, you're saved. No repentance necessary, no baptism necessary. So, what's going on here? What does Paul mean with this? What are we supposed to learn from this passage? We're going to do three things for the next few minutes to try to understand this. uh, I hope truly the way that the Spirit of God wants to understand it so that this promise will come true for us. Thy promise I believe. Oh, Lamb of God, I come. Didn't we just sing that? This promise is real righteousness, to be right with God, to be right as a human being, as you ought to be, to be saved from sin and death. And isn't that what we're all going for? That's why we come and sit in place like this and pray these prayers and sing these songs and open up this book. And while we talk about the Lord and think about the Lord because we want to be saved. We don't want to be lost, okay. people. We want to be in the Lord now and forever, amen? amen. All right, so what's he going? what's going on here? How does this promise come true in our lives? Here's going to do three things. Number one, we're going to briefly look at the immediate context of what Paul's talking about. Number two, we're going to look at the scriptural background or I might say the scriptural foundation of the things that Paul is teaching because he's not the first person who said these words. He got them from other words God had spoken in the past. And then we'll draw some conclusions about what this means for us and how to be saved, frankly, uh, from this. I'll go ahead and tell you, uh, Lord willing, both this Sunday and next Sunday are kind of be uh, two parts, exploring questions about salvation from the Book of Romans. I hope you're enjoying Romans this month. And you know, it's May 16th. We're about halfway home in the book in the month of May. If you haven't been reading Romans, now's a great time to pick up with the monthly reading. Try to read it a couple times in the next few weeks, and I, hopefully, this will help us to understand what God's doing in our lives and the gospel that we're here to preach to those who are not saved. All right. So first, the context. Go back to Romans 9 and verse 30. Romans 9 and verse 30. We're picking up, obviously, like. Half, literally halfway through the entire book of Romans, but I think Romans 9 and verse 30 helps us to see the context of what Paul is addressing. He says in Romans 9 and verse 30, What shall we say then? That Gentiles, the nations, people who were not God's covenant people before Israel, who did not pursue righteousness previously, have attained righteousness. Ooh, how? Even the righteousness which is by faith. But Israel, the people who were the covenant people of God for so long, they pursued a law of a law of righteousness, but they did not arrive at that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as though it were by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone, just as it is written, "Behold, I lay in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and who believe and he who believes in him will not be disappointed or put to shame." In other words, here's what God's saying. I'm putting something down. If you'll build your life on that, you'll be in good shape. But the problem was Israel and many, many people weren't willing to build their lives on the rock God gave them, but rather wanted to build up their own salvation, build up their own righteousness, build up their own way of connecting to God. Chapter 10 and verse one, Paul, brethren, my desire and my prayer to God for them is for their salvation. I don't want people to be lost. I don't want people to be, away from the Lord. I want them to be saved. For I testify about them that they have a zeal or a passion for God. It's not in accordance with knowledge. They love God. They care about God. It's not that they don't think anything about him or don't want him. They have a zeal, a passion for him. It's not according to knowledge. Therefore, it's not gonna be worth anything. For not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. For Christ, the stone that was laid in Zion, 9.33, coming from the book of Isaiah. Christ is the end, or I love some translations may say the culmination or the goal, the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Do you hear what Paul is saying? saying, here's the deal, y'all. Jesus has come. He's the promised cornerstone that God sent for people to build their lives on. Here's how you can be saved. Here's how you'll be righteous, pulled out of sin and death and made right with God. It's in Jesus Christ. And so it's not something you can manufacture on your own. Some people said, no thanks. We'd rather by our own works, by our own ingenuity, by our own perception of things, by our own conclusions, by our own doctrines, we want to build up our own righteousness and therefore be saved. And Paul says, ah, I mean, there's such a passion there, but it's ignorant passion. And think about Ignorant passion ain't worth much, is it? On your job, you've been around people who are passionate or you've been somebody who's passionate, but you didn't know how to do anything or somebody that's out on a sports field or a court, passionate, they're getting after it, but they keep on fouling everybody or they keep on breaking all the rules because they don't know how to do the thing. He's saying the problem here is there's people who are passionate for God, but they're not knowing God's righteousness and they're seeking to establish their own. What they should have done is submitted themselves to the righteousness of God in Jesus Christ. He says, that's what I'm praying for. And that's what I'm preaching for. Frankly, that's what this book is, is a a great part of it is being written about is how to submit to the true righteousness of God, how to be saved. So then in verse five, he continues and he goes to the law that these people were using, saying, oh, we'll make ourselves righteous using this. He said, no, 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 you didn't get the point. That law was pointing towards something else and it was righteousness in Jesus Christ. For, he says, Moses, the one who wrote that law, the Torah, verse five, for Moses writes that the man who practices the righteousness which is based on law shall live by that righteousness. You do all the righteous stuff, you'll be righteous. Leviticus 18, five, Paul quotes from, um, or references here. But the righteousness based on faith speaks as follows and these are words from moses we're exploring these more in just a second but here's what he said do not say in your heart ah, who will ascend heaven and then paul comments and says that is to bring christ down wasn't human beings who brought jesus here to save us he came to save us uh, or who will descend into the abyss that's moses words and paul again comments and says that is to bring christ up from the dead and we didn't do that None of us manufactured life from the dead. None of us brought Jesus to die on the cross for us. None of us did that. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith, which we are preaching. Faith in what, Paul? What's the word of faith that you are preaching? Well, here it is, verse nine, that if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, You're not the Lord of your salvation. You're not the Lord of righteousness. Jesus is the Lord. And you didn't bring life out of death. You didn't bring salvation. God did through Jesus Christ. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. For the scripture says, the scripture says, Whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. Remember that? That's the same quote from the end of chapter nine. That's what they were missing. They were thinking we can save ourselves. But he's saying, you're going to be disappointed unless you build your life on the rock. Who is Jesus Christ? But whoever believes in him will not be disappointed, will not be put to shame. You won't be running around trying to save yourself anymore. You'll be able to rest in the salvation that's provided in Jesus Christ. For there's no distinction, Jew or Greek. Doesn't matter who you are, where you come from, what you've done before. We're all sinners. We all sin and fall short of the glory of God. There's no distinction between Jew and Greek because he's the same Lord of all. And the riches abound for all who call on him. For whoever will call on the name of the Lord. Will be saved. Paul is trying to convince those who are reading this, the original audience, and even us today stop trying to build your own righteousness. Stop trying to save yourself. Stop trying to set your own terms for how to get right with God and learn to believe that Jesus is Lord. You're not the boss anymore. You can't be. Because when you were the boss, all that it resulted in was sin and death and ruin for your life. Jesus is Lord. Submit to his righteousness, not to the one that you'll manufacture on your own. And know that if you'll do that, it will change everything for you because God raised him from the dead. And if God raised him from the dead and you're believing in that, you're hitching your wagon to him, then there you go. You're good to go. That's the message. That's the teaching that he gives here. Trust in Jesus. Submit to God's righteousness in Jesus. Stop trying to do it your way or on your own. All right. So whatever it is that Paul's teaching us fits into that context. Confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. For with the mouth one confesses, believing in your heart that God raised him from the dead. Amen. All right. So, uh, good. What about the Old Testament stuff Paul's doing here? He quotes from three, at least three texts uh, that are relevant for us. Deuteronomy chapter 30, Isaiah 28, and Joel chapter 2. Deuteronomy 30, Isaiah 28, and Joel chapter 2. We're going to briefly look at these, and what I'd like to argue is that whatever Paul is saying is uh, rooted in the messages of these texts. In other words, it's not just like Paul's like, how do I make an argument here? You know what? I'm going to pull out a couple of random quotes from the Bible, because that always gets them. When I say the Scripture says, they agree with me immediately. I don't think that's what he's referencing. something that the, his readers would have been triggered to think, oh yeah, I know that passage. I remember the teaching there. And what he's doing is just uh, tapping into it with a little quote, and you're supposed to understand the whole context. So I'll give you a couple examples of how we do this. Uh, Or I'm going to try to at least this in our vernacular uh, or in our in our uh, talking. Right. Um, You guys know that corny movie, The Princess Bride? Remember that movie? So sometimes you go to weddings. Preachers are the worst. Sometimes preacher dads, especially they got preacher jokes and dad jokes. It's a terrible combo. Y'all pray for me and Caleb on that. We need to, we need to be protected, okay? Uh, so you show up for a wedding and it's inevitable that if, if the, the preacher guy has watched that movie, then he'll do that line about marriage. I'm not even gonna do it because I'm not one of those guys. I've been praying about this, right? But, but the guy will end the little pre-ceremony, practice ceremony, the rehearsal, that's what it's called. Uh, he'll do that line from the princess bride and marriage. Now, he's just saying a couple words. But the point of it is that you think back to all the other, and he doesn't have to describe the dorky outfit that the the minister in that in that movie does or what all is going on with the rest of the story in the princess bride you're you're triggered to think oh yeah i know that little line even just one or two words bang it takes me to that whole scene and that whole dialogue see what i'm saying there's other examples we'll reference little lines of songs something will happen and you'll just drop a line from a song uh, or a poem and the point is you're supposed to oh yeah yeah, we all know that song or we all know that line from that movie or we all know that and now i've got the whole context that make sense that's what I believe Paul is doing here. And so whatever, confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart and you'll be saved, whatever that teaching is and what it means accords with the lessons from those Old Testament texts. And what it is, it's leading up to the full revelation of the gospel. Part of the reason I know that is because look at what Paul says specifically in uh, verse eight. Is that what it is? Yeah, verse eight, where he's quoting Moses from Deuteronomy three. He says, what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is... The word of faith, which we are preaching we're saying whatever Moses was talking about in Deuteronomy 30. I'm telling you the whole story now. Same thing down here with uh, verse 11. After talking about confessing Jesus, Lord and believing in him as uh, being risen from the dead for the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. Well, there he's quoting from Isaiah 28. And his point is that thing Isaiah was talking about. Now it's come true in Jesus. And then uh, the reference from Joel 2 that's in verse 13, whoever will call on the name of the Lord. Well, who's the Lord? Jesus Christ is Lord. And so what I want us to do is go go through these passages and try to understand the blessings of them. And then we'll draw some conclusions about how to understand, how to think about, how to talk about this teaching in Romans 10, this beautiful promise, I should say, in Romans 10. Confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that he's been risen from the dead and you will be saved. Deuteronomy 30, let's go. Deuteronomy chapter 30. The book of Deuteronomy are Moses' last words to the children of Israel before they entered into the promised land that God had given them. And Moses is going about to be taken by the Lord. Uh, and I'll just tell you, there's a lot of stuff that's kind of a downer, especially at the end of this uh, series of speeches. Basically, Moses' point at the end of Deuteronomy is, A, God's told you all how to live with him, and you're not going to do it and you're going to get punished for it. That's his message at the end. It's a super downer. Very true, being a prophet, he was speaking exactly what would happen. But a downer. But in Deuteronomy 30, Moses looks forward to a brighter future. And he calls Israel uh, to think about what God would require of them in order for restoration and for goodness to come back into them. Deuteronomy chapter 30 and verse 1 says, So it shall be when all these things, all the punishment that they would receive, for their disobedience when all these things have come upon you the blessing and the curse which i've set before you and you call them to mind or you remember them in all the nations where the lord your god has banished you and you return to the lord your god and obey him with all your heart and all your soul according to all that i command you today you and your sons then the Lord your God will restore you from captivity and have compassion on you and he'll gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. If your outcasts are at the ends of the earth, from there, the Lord will gather you and from there, he will bring you back. The Lord your God will bring you into the land which your fathers possessed and you shall possess it and he'll prosper you and multiply you more than your fathers. Good stuff's gonna happen, God say, uh, Moses says. He's gonna bring you back. He's gonna gather you. He's gonna bless you. Did you notice the condition in verse two? What was the condition? for this restoration, this blessing, this good stuff that God promises. If you return and obey. That's why in verse six, he continues. He says, moreover, the Lord, your God, will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord, your God, with all your heart and with all your soul so that you may live. The Lord, your God, will inflict all these curses on your enemies and on those who hate you and persecute you. And you shall again obey the Lord and observe his commandments, which I command you today. Then the Lord your God will prosper you abundantly in all the work of your hand and the offspring of your body and the offspring of your cattle and the produce of your ground. For the Lord God will rejoice over you for good, just as he rejoiced over your fathers, if you obey the Lord your God, to keep his commandments and his statutes, which are written in the book of the law, if you turn to the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. Moses says, you want the good stuff to happen? You want God to bless you and to be with you? Turn back to him. Return to him. Uh, by the way, I recognize some of your translations may not say the word obey. maybe the word, I think the old translations say, hearken or listen. And uh, the, the message of that is not just like, oh, I heard something. But that word means to actually submit to it. It's like when your mom told you, hey, you better listen. Your mom didn't mean these Thing, the sound that's coming out of my mouth needs to go into your eardrums. That's not, and if that's all that you thought she meant, you found out pretty quick that wasn't what she meant. Listen to me. And that's the teaching here listen, hearken, obey, do what I'm telling you. Of course, that's made clear there in verse 10 keep his commandments. Don't just hear them, keep them, preserve them, make them the thing that guides your life and dictates your behaviors and your thoughts and your actions and everything. I just want to note a couple of things about how this passage relates to the book of Romans otherwise, for those of you who are reading, and that's going to be all of us. Um, in Romans chapter two and verse 28, Paul, in speaking about the Jews and the Gentiles and all these covenantal questions, in Romans 2, 28 and 29, he says a Jew is not a Jew who's one in the flesh or outwardly, but the people of God, the Jews, the true people of God, are from every nation inwardly. And circumcision is not the flesh but it's in the it's a heart. Paul would later expand on that in Romans 5, verse 5, where he said that God's love has been poured into our hearts, circumcised, made us devoted and exclusive for God. It's the same language here. Moses said, you know, all this fleshly stuff, that's not really the point. God wants you to be devoted to him in your heart so that you will love him as he has loved you and blessed you and promised you all these things. God wants you to love him back. And that manifests in your obedience to him. Skip down to verse 15. See, I have set before you today life and prosperity and death and adversity in that I command you today to love the Lord your God. What does that mean? To walk in his ways and keep his commandments and his statutes and his judgments. Obey him that you may live and multiply and that the Lord your God may bless you in the land where you are entering to possess. But if your heart turns away and you will not obey, but are drawn away and worship other gods and serve them, I declare to you today that you shall surely perish. You will not prolong your days in the land where you are crossing in the Jordan to enter and possess. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I've set before you the life and death, the blessing and the curse. So choose life in order that you may live. You and your descendants, how are we gonna live? How's the good stuff gonna come? By loving the Lord your God, by obeying his voice, by holding fast to him. For this is your life and the length of your days that you may live in the land which the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to give them. If there's one idea that explodes off the page here of the instruction Moses was giving in this future where things will be restored, where you'd be made right, where everything would come together, obey God, obey God. And not just hollow obedience like, okay, fine, I'll do the thing, but love him, be devoted to him. So much so that whatever he says, that's what you're going to do. That's how you're going to live. Commit yourself to him completely and fully. That's the message that Moses gives here. And remember, this is the message that Paul says in Romans 10. These words Moses said, this is the word of faith, which we are preaching. In some way, shape, or form, this message here is exactly the gospel. Now, you might say, wait a second, though. None of this is what Paul said. He didn't quote any of that. True. We skipped over the part that he quoted. Look at verse 11. Here's Moses speaking to the children of Israel. So many centuries before Paul ever wrote these words and certainly much longer than since uh, we were around. Verse 11, here's what Moses says: All this stuff about you need to obey God and love him, be devoted to him, serve him. Verse 11 says, for this commandment which I command you today is not too difficult for you. Funny, I wonder if Moses, when he was talking about obeying God and loving God and serving God and returning to God and devoting yourself to God fully, I wonder if he could see some people in the crowd looking at him kind of sideways or kind of doing that thing where they leaned over each other and kind of shaking their head and be like, I don't don't think we can do this. That sounds too hard. Actually, I already know it is because we've busted up so many of the commandments. We barely even started this thing of a covenant relationship with God, and we keep on breaking the commandments already. I mean, like the day that we started this covenant, we were worshiping idols. We can't do this. It's too difficult. Moses says, no, it ain't. This is not too difficult for you, nor is it out of reach. You can imagine someone saying, How? How is that possible? It's not in heaven, the commandment that is, that you should say, who will go up to heaven for us and make us hear it, that we may observe it or do it. Nor is it beyond the sea, nor is it in the abyss of the sea, that you should say, who will cross over the sea for us to get it for us and make us hear it, that we may observe it. We can't go up into heaven to figure out how to obey God. We can't go down the depths. That's how far away being devoted to God, being obedient. That's how far away it seems. All the way up in outer space or all the way down in the depths of the ocean. I don't know how we could ever do this. Moses, you say it's not too difficult. I say otherwise. is what Moses says, verse 14. The word is very near you in your mouth and in your heart that you may observe it. Is close to you. Do you remember how Paul used this? If you want to cheat, go back to Romans 10, check it out. He quotes this and he says, well, what word is it that's very near you, in your heart and in your mouth? It's the word of faith, which we are preaching, Paul says. The word that Jesus is Lord. The word that God raised him up from the dead. So it's not too hard by to God. It's not. You can't submit to God. You can subject yourself to his righteousness instead of your own because God has made it possible through Jesus Christ. And so if you will confess him as Lord, if you'll believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will do what Moses said so long ago. You must do in order to be right with God. You hear that? You see that? Now, Israel, of course, didn't do this for centuries so much so the prophet Isaiah would say this in Isaiah chapter 28. Let's go to our second quotation from Romans 10. Isaiah chapter 28. The centuries rolled on and the people drifted further and further away from God. They violated more and more of God's commands. Most notably, the command to have no other gods before him. They worshiped other gods. They served idols. They trusted in anything really except the Lord, it seems like. Isaiah chapter 28, beginning in verse 14, tells us about one of those covenants, one of those ways that they would trust in something other than God. And in that way, not be faithful to him, not be obedient. Isaiah 28, verse 14 says this. Therefore, hear the word of the Lord, O scoffers, who rule this people who are in Jerusalem. Because you have said, we've made a covenant with death. And with Sheol, we have made a pact. The overwhelming scourge will not reach us when it passes by. For we have made falsehood or maybe false gods our refuge and we have concealed ourselves with deception. Do you hear what the prophet says that people are saying? We're protected. We are safe. We are good. We don't need any help, Lord, because we found other things to take care of us. We confess the name of fill in the blank with all kinds of different gods. We've made covenants with, we've made something else, our Lord and our master. He calls it death. Maybe they literally were going to the dead for help Some of them might say, oh, we're not doing that. He says, yeah, you are, because you're worshiping or trusting in anything other than me. And you think that's going to protect you. You think that's going to save you. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone, a tested stone, a costly cornerstone for the foundation, firmly placed. And he who believes in it will not be disturbed or will not be put to shame hear what God's kind of saying? Y'all keep trusting in all these other things. That's why you haven't been able to do what Moses told you to do in Deuteronomy 30. Y'all keep disobeying me because you trust in other things. You're listening to other gods, other prophets, other messengers of how to be right, how to be safe. So you keep on rebelling against me. And that's why you're not being blessed. That's why things aren't going well for you. You're not with me. You haven't returned to me. You're devoting yourself to the other thing. So I'm gonna draw a line in the sand. Actually, more than that, I'm gonna put a line straight down and it's gonna be a stone a cornerstone that you're going to have to choose if you're going to build your life on it or keep building your life in these other things. This isn't too hard for you. It's not far away in heaven or down in the depths of the sea. I'm putting the stone right there in your reach, in your access. And if you would believe in him, you won't be disappointed. But of course, you know what they did. You know what all of us did. The way Paul says it in the book of Romans, Romans chapter 1, He talks about how the wrath of God has been revealed because people turned away from God. And though, on the surface, that passage in the beginning of Romans sounds like, oh, yeah, all the Gentiles, all the non Jews, and it is about the non Jews, it was just as much about the Jews, too. From Sinai all the way through their history, they turned to other gods. They didn't build their life on the cornerstone God gave, they weren't obedient to Him, they weren't loyal to Him, they were loyal to themselves. They didn't confess anything that he had to do as the true Lord of their life or believe in. They believed in their own things. And so judgment came. The book of Joel rolls around and the judgment is upon the people of God. You can find the book of Joel. It's one of the little ones. But in Joel chapter two, we have the third quotation that Paul gives us in Romans chapter 10. Joel chapter two, Uh, Joel speaks about an invasion of locusts. And people debate whether it was actual locusts that were gonna eat up all the crops or whether he's describing like a foreign army that would be like an army of locusts, or maybe it's both. I'm not sure what it is. I know it's bad though. Y'all are in trouble, God says. You're gonna be punished because you didn't do Deuteronomy 30. You didn't remain faithful and loyal in obedience to me. You kept trusting in other gods, Isaiah 28, and you didn't bow down to my righteousness. You didn't build your life on the cornerstone that I would give you. You didn't seek that out. You didn't listen to me at all. And so the judgment is coming. And it's a horrifying thing. You can read Joel chapters one and two and see just how devastating and tragic it is that they're being utterly destroyed. But in verse 12, there's a little ray of light that breaks through the clouds. Joel 2 and verse 12 says, yet even now declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart. Does that language sound familiar? What did Moses say they need to do? Even whenever you're punished, when you're devastated, when you're far away from God, return to him with all your heart and with all your soul. Joel is just quoting from Moses. He's going right back to that Deuteronomy 30 vision of of a restored future, of of better days ahead. And God says, look, right now, just right now. I don't care what's going on. I don't care how far away you've gone. Return to me with all your heart, with fasting, weeping, and mourning, Rend your hearts and not your garments. Now return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in loving and kindness and relenting of evil. What God said about himself in Exodus chapter 34. And who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, even a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. I love that for who knows. Anybody who'd read their Bible, they knew God said he would. And he always had, whenever his people turned, whenever they said, we're done, God, with the other gods. We are going to build our lives on you. We are going to be obedient to you. We're going to listen to your word. We're going to love you and no one else. You're our one. God always has been good to his people. It goes on and says, so blow a trumpet in Zion. Make a big announcement. Consecrate a fast. Proclaim a solemn assembly. Gather the people. Sanctify the congregation. You remember what Moses said? I'll gather your people from all the ends of the earth. Let's do it. Let's do what God said that we can do and all the good stuff will come. Um, Gather the children and the nursing infants. Let the bridegroom come out of his room and the bride out of her bridal chamber. I don't care who you are. You need to repent. You need to come back to the Lord. Let the priests, the Lord's ministers, weep between the porch and the altar and let them say, spare your people, O Lord, and do not make your inheritance a reproach, a byword among the nations. Why should they say among the peoples, where is your God? Then the Lord will be zealous for his land and he will have pity on his people. The Lord will answer and say to his people, behold, I'm going to send you grain, new wine and oil. You'll be satisfied and full with them and I'll never again make you a a reproach among the nations. God says, I'll come through. I'll save you. I'll make you righteous once again. The text goes on to talk about the joy God would have over His people, and the joy that the people would have in God whenever they return to Him, when they stop trying to build their lives on false gods, making a covenant with death, and instead devote themselves to Him, just like Moses said, to love Him completely and to be obedient to Him. Verse twenty-eight it may sound familiar to you from another place in the New Testament. It will come about after this that pour out my spirit on all kind your sons and your daughters will prophesy your old men will dream dreams your young men will see visions even on the male and female servants i'll pour out my spirit in those days god's spirit is god's life giving force i'm going to i'm going to make you all be alive again you were dead and lost now you're found and you're alive once again i'll display wonders in the sky and on the earth Blood and fire and columns of smoke and the sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. I'm going to change the whole world for y'all. That's what God says. Verse 32, and it will come about that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. For on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, there will be those who escape, as the Lord has said, even among the survivors whom the Lord calls. This passage in Joel 2 is quoted by the apostle Peter, the first time the gospel was preached in Acts chapter 2. Well, the gospel of Jesus as Lord and Christ. He quotes this and says, it's happening. And if you would call on the name of the Lord, you'll be saved. Paul, of course, quotes the same thing in Romans chapter 10. And here's the message of Joel chapter 2. If you stop living your way, if you repent and turn back to God, he is gracious to you. Stop going your own path. Turn back to God and he'll save you. All right, so let's just recap the lessons we learned from these Old Testament texts. Deuteronomy chapter 30, obey the voice of God. Don't do it your way. Isaiah chapter 28, build your life trusting in God's cornerstone, not in the other things that you could build your life on. That's where that obedience comes from, believing in the cornerstone, which is going to require Joel chapter 2, your repentance, turning away from sin, turning away from the world, turning away from yourself, returning to Him, rending your heart, not just your garments. We might say, Ripping your heart. Remember what Moses said? Circumcise your heart, tear away something. And Paul says that's what the gospel message is all about. This is the word of faith which we are preaching. So I don't know about you, but all of that context sounds a lot more than. Admit something is true and think that something is true in your head. So let's go back to Romans 10 and let's let's kind of land this plane with some conclusions that we should uh, we should draw from this text and what this text should mean to us and how it should change the way we live. The first thing I'll say is what Romans 10 is teaching us, what Deuteronomy 30 and Isaiah 28 and Joel 2 and Acts 2 and the whole scripture, the whole gospel message that God's been weaving throughout time, The message is God wants all people to be saved. He is the same Lord of all. And it doesn't matter where you're coming from or who you are. God's promise has always been, I'm reaching my hands out to you all day long. And I don't care how bad you disrespected me or violated me or or dishonored me or insulted me. I want you. I want to save you. I want to restore you. I want to bring you home to me. Whenever we read passages like this, I hope it humbles our hearts, just like we sang earlier, to worship. He is altogether together lovely. Who else could ever love us this much, love me this much? He is altogether lovely for that. He is altogether wonderful to us. It's, he is full of wonder. How could he do this? He has, and he does, and he will. If you're sitting here and you're like, man, I've been so far away from God and I don't know what he could do with me other than punish me. Stop it. You need to believe. You need to believe in the gospel, the word of faith that we are preaching, that Jesus is Lord of all, that all who return to him will be saved. All who call on his name will be saved. That's the first conclusion we need to draw from all these texts. God wants to save us all desperately. There's a second thing I think we need to learn from this, uh, this series of texts that we've looked at, and specifically from this passage in Romans 10. Um, we need a better viewpoint of what faith is. We need a better viewpoint of what confession is. We need a better viewpoint of what it means to call on the name of the Lord. I think it's clear from the text we've looked at that Paul is not teaching think something is true, and say something is true, and then you're saved. That's it. Doesn't matter what else you do, doesn't matter how much, how else you live. You don't have to change anything. Just believe that God did something in your heart and say something true about Jesus, and bam, you're saved. You can keep on living an immoral life. You can keep on doing whatever you wanna do, living however you wanna live, and you're good to go. That is not the teaching of these texts that we've looked at. So maybe a, a better way to think of this is, call on the name of the Lord, take an oath to pledge your allegiance to Jesus as Lord. Confess him as Lord means that you say, whatever I am and whatever I do, Jesus is my master. Which by the way, that means it better be true. You can't say Jesus is your master and then go living like you're your own master. Confessing him as Lord means he actually is bossing you around. Believing on him, well, to use Moses' language, actually it's not Moses' it's Paul's language in the book of Romans, believing on having faith is to obey him. Can I show you a few passages in the book of Romans that prove this? Look at Romans chapter one and verse five. Romans chapter one and verse five. When Paul, the first time he used the word faith or belief, same same thing. Romans chapter one and verse five, he says, Through Jesus, we have received grace and apostleship to bring about. The obedience of faith. The obedience of faith among all the nations for his namesake. You hear what he's saying? Real faith manifests in obedience. That's why in chapter 2 and verse 8, chapter 2 and verse 8, when he speaks about those who will be punished eternally, this is the way he talks about it. Chapter 2 and verse 8, those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness. There'll be wrath in the next second, Paul. I thought it was all about faith is the difference between righteousness and unrighteousness. Paul would say, yeah, that's what I said. Obey, obey righteousness, obey God's way. That's what faith really is all about. That's how faith works. Look over at Romans chapter six. Romans chapter six the passage that speaks about the new life we're supposed to have once we're baptized into Christ. Listen to what he says, Romans 6 and verse 12. Therefore, do not let sin reign or lord over, be the master of your mortal bodies so that you obey its lusts. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. Skip down to Verse 17. Thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. Slaves, obedient, submissive, subject to Jesus, our Lord. Go to chapter 10. Just before this whole thing we're looking at about confessing with your mouth, Jesus, Lord, and believing in your heart that God raised him from the dead. Look at chapter 10 and verse three. The problem with those people, who were not pursuing righteousness by faith. You remember what it was? Look at the way he describes in chapter 10 and verse 3, for not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own. They did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. That's active. God, what do you want me to do? To use Moses' name, God, what is your voice tell me to do? I'm going to do that. I'm going to obey you. I'm not going to build my life on the other foundations. What's the cornerstone? What are the parameters for how I'm supposed to build my life? Isaiah 28. How do I return to you, Joel 2? What repentance do you call me to? They didn't subject themselves to God's righteousness. And again, in chapter 10, just after our reading in verse 16, 10, 16, however, they did not all heed or obey the good news. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? You see the parallel belief and obedience there, believing and heeding. All right. What Paul is calling us to, what the spirit of God is calling us to is absolute and total commitment to God. That's what confessing him as Lord is. It's not just admitting something is true. Confession is saying, God, whatever you say, that's what I say. Whatever you want me to do, that's what I'm going to do. Believing in your heart that Jesus uh, has been risen from the dead isn't just, oh, that was a really important historical event that happened. No, no. It's belief that the whole world has changed and that as the risen Lord, I must submit to him. If I want his salvation, he has to really be my master. I've got to build my life on him or else I will be disappointed. I will be put to shame if I build my life on anything else. We need a better definition of faith, a biblical definition of faith, absolute, total commitment and allegiance. We pledge our allegiance to the cross of Jesus Christ. We take an oath whenever we come to Christ, that we're gonna be committed to him and obey him. Knowing full well, we're not always gonna do it exactly right. But whenever we don't, we're gonna obey him. And what that means, we confess our sins. We're gonna pray for his forgiveness and he's gonna restore us and we're gonna keep it moving. That's the kind of life that Paul is calling us to. That's the kind of life that brings about salvation. And it's not something that you went up into heaven and grabbed for yourself. It's not something that you went down in the abyss and pulled up to save yourself. It's the word of faith in jesus christ and this is why this passage isn't in conflict with places where paul and the other apostles and jesus say repent that's if we if we read it said uh paul don't you think repentance is important he'd be like yeah what'd you think i was saying confess jesus as lord you got to repent okay but what about baptism i've heard you say stuff about baptism that I mean, you even gave your own story that when your sins are washed away is when you're baptized. But this kind of sounds like once I say Jesus is Lord, that's the moment I'm saved. So which is it? Paul would say, when is it that you really call on the name of the Lord? When you're baptized into Christ. That's what Paul said about his own story. That's what Peter says in 1 Peter 3. All these things work together in harmony and they're all necessary. We need to have a better definition of faith, absolute and total devotion uh, to the Lord. Uh, and maybe I'll just add this uh Confession is a way bigger deal than maybe we give it credit for. Whenever I'm talking about Jesus to my friends and neighbors, to the Lord, to my brethren, I'm pledging my allegiance once again. I'm renewing the oath once again that I will not, my life is not my own. To you, I belong. I give myself away. That's what we're saying when we say Jesus is Lord. Um, But I want to also say on on the flip side of this, as much as some of us might say, oh, yeah, that sinner's prayer stuff or that just receive Jesus in your heart stuff or, you know, just admit Jesus is Lord or admit that he was risen from the dead. That's not enough to be saved. You got to repent. You got to be baptized, et cetera. That's true. Uh, but let's not make opposite mistakes. Hey, if you just change your behavior, you can be saved. No, that's not repentance. That's not repentance. We may call that repentance, but it's not. Behavioral. A modification is not repentance repentance is saying jesus you are the lord and whatever you say that's what i'm gonna do or about baptism getting dunked in some water listen summer summer's about to hit hard here pretty soon we're all excited for that and we've all gotten baptized bunch of the times when you got thrown into a pool or into a lake or a pond or something by somebody, you got baptized by your older brother in the name of a prank but that's not baptism that saves you Getting dunked in some water means nothing if you don't believe in your heart that Jesus has been raised from the dead because that's what baptism is, being raised with Christ. So you've got to believe that in your heart. Baptism without confessing Jesus as Lord is pretty meaningless doing a religious ritual because they don't just call the other churchy people do it so i'm going to do it also no baptism only means something if it's in confession that jesus is my master now you get it we can make the same mistake that someone makes with confession say oh just say this just believe this think it in your heart and boom you're saved. we can make the same mistake with repentance and baptism let's not do that let's do what moses the prophet said what the gospel calls us to submit ourselves to the righteousness of god subject ourselves to jesus as lord build our lives on him the cornerstone We need to have a biblical, true, better definition of faith, absolute devotion to Christ. Last thing, who's this instruction given to in Romans 10? Who's it given to? It's interesting. This isn't Paul preaching like in the book of Acts. They would be at times to people who aren't Christians. He begins this book and says that this was written to the saints, to those who are loved above by God. Salvation is nearer to us than when we first believed, Paul says in Romans 13 and verse 11. Can I challenge you with this? The confession of Jesus' lordship and the belief in your heart that he was raised from the dead is not something you did that one day when you decided you were going to be in Christ and that day you were baptized. That was a special day whenever you were saved from your sins, when those were washed away, you committed yourself to Christ fully. That was a special day for you. Paul says it was like life from the dead, Romans 6. But that's not a one-time event. He says here to saints, if you confess Jesus as Lord, if you believe, not believed past tense, but if you believe that God raised him from the dead, then you will be saved. Do you believe that now? Are you confessing that now, every day, to the Lord in prayer? To your brethren is words of encouragement. To those who are lost so that they too can be saved. God is constantly saving us. And I know this is a tricky one because are you saved? Yeah, you should say yes. If you've been baptized into Christ in repentance and faith and confession, you should say yes, I am saved. But not yet. Not yet. Not all the way. You know what I mean? And we should say yes, by the way. She's the only one who said it. The rest of y'all need to step up. Okay, I'm serious. But it's not done yet. Paul said it this way in Romans 5 and verse 9. He said, if we have been justified by faith, how much more will we be saved? Shall we be saved from the wrath of God in the future? You understand? God is still saving us. He's saving you from those temptations. He wants to save you from those temptations that are so alluring still in your heart and in your soul. God's saving you from the hopelessness and the aimlessness that this world brings upon us whenever we follow the gods of this world. God's saving you from fear of death because you know in your heart that God raised him from the dead and you've already been raised with him in baptism. And you know, if God raised him up and his spirit is in you, Romans 8 and verse 11, he'll give life to your mortal body to the message is a call for us to be more committed every day in our mouth in our heart in every aspect of our lives so that we will be saved right now we're enjoying just the little just the little appetizer of that salvation and one day we'll drink it in fully we'll feast on the salvation of god no more fear of death no more temptation no more sorrow no more crying no more of any of that stuff god wants us to be saved now and forever and so the call for us is to be completely devoted to him in absolute obedience and submission and to keep confessing Jesus Lord with our mouth and to believe it in our heart and to know that when we see him, we will be saved.